I've, I've never been a fan of sermon titles. <clears throat> I find them a bit of a nuisance to come up with. But this time I actually came up with a title and a subtitle. The subtitle today is, is that we're going to discover a foundation for standing firm in this day and age where we live. We're starting a, a series on Hebrews. For the next seven weeks, we're going to be exploring the book of Hebrews. We're following the lectionary reading, uh, a schedule of weekly readings for the church, though, ah, sadly, we're a bit behind. We're behind a week. So what we're looking at this morning in Hebrews 1 and 2 was actually the topic of preaching a week ago in many churches around our world. I believe that in this study we're going to find a foundation for standing firm in our faith in a culture where we are increasingly out of sync. This morning we're going to begin with a brief overview of the book of Hebrews. The title Hebrews that you'll see in your Bible is not found in the original copies of what we call the book. Actually, this title was added sometime around the 2nd century A.D. Uh, it was apparently added by someone who read the book of Hebrews and said, I think this thing was written to Jewish Christians. And he wrote in the title to the Hebrews. Now, there is no strong indication in the book itself as to who received it. Though there is one slight hint at the end of the book that maybe it was written to a church in the city of Rome. But the bigger question is who wrote the book? We have no solid leads if we search for an answer. Possibly Paul. But the tone and the content of the epistle are quite unlike any letter that Paul ever wrote, at least that we have in, in our New Testament. Maybe Barnabas wrote it. Now, while it's included in the epistles in your Bible, it really doesn't take that form or shape. If you read it, it reads much more like a sermon than a letter. Uh, it reads like a long sermon, at least by our standards. These days in North America, a sermon usually runs 20 to 28 minutes. And anything longer than 20 minutes is, for many people, a long sermon. And woe to that person who goes over the limit as this poor fellow gets approached by the police and said, you're preaching a 45-minute sermon in a 25-minute zone. I'm going to have to see your license and ordination. <laughs> well, this was one of those sermons that needed to be heard. And so it was written down and distributed as a book among the churches. And it's been preserved in our Bibles as the book of Hebrews. Though sadly, it's often overlooked. Now, Hebrews as a book gives us some strong clues for the reason it was preached in the first place and then preserved as a letter. So what do we know about the book? Well, we know that the book quotes heavily from the Old Testament, especially the Psalms and, and the prophets. There are more than 60 Old Testament quotes in this book of Hebrews. It's also it's the preacher's frequent use of Old Testament references that suggests that he was, in fact, speaking to a Jewish Christian audience, Christians who had formerly been part of the Jewish faith. Now, we do know from the book that many of those who first heard the sermon had learned the good news of the gospel from men and women who had been eyewitnesses 
of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And they believed what they heard. And then we know one more thing about them. Their lives as believers weren't easy. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, We're going to start with verses 32 and read through 34. It's on page 926 in the Pew Bible that you have in front of you there. Choosing to follow Jesus had not been easy for these Hebrews. And and, uh, I want you to follow the preacher's outline. I'll put some words up on the screen for you. But follow the outline of what it is they actually faced. Verse 32. Think back on those early days when you first learned about Christ. Remember how you remained faithful, even though it meant terrible suffering. Sometimes you were exposed to public ridicule and were beaten. And sometimes you helped others who were suffering the same things. You suffered along with those who were thrown into jail. And when all you owned was taken from you, you accepted it with joy. You knew there were better things waiting for you that will last forever. Following Jesus had resulted in some hardships for them, but they had been faithful in spite of those hardships. Even more, they'd even been joyful in the midst of their suffering. However, everything that he said at this point is past tense. Some in the church were in danger of giving up. And the preacher of Hebrews addresses them with warnings and exhortations, encouraging them not to turn back. We find that in the next verse, verse 35. He says, So do not throw away this confident trust in the Lord. Remember the great reward it brings you. Patient endurance is what you need now, so that you will continue to do God's will. Then you will receive all that he promised. This preacher calls him to patient endurance reminding them of the rewards of following Jesus. But at the same time, he gives them a very stern and serious warning in the next verse. For he writes, For in just a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. And my righteous ones will live by faith. But I will take no pleasure in anyone who turns away. This, by the way, is one of the many, many quotes. This is a quote from the book of Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk. But then he adds a final word of encouragement. He says, but we are not like those who turn away from God to their own destruction. We are the faithful ones whose souls will be saved. He's calling us and encouraging us to be faithful, even though everyone seems to be against us. He's calling us to keep following Jesus even when we're tempted to turn back to a more comfortable way of life. Now, throughout his sermon, he holds up three examples of faithful endurance. First, Abraham. Abraham waited patiently, he writes, and then he received what God had promised. And then he holds up Moses as an example of of patient endurance and ultimately Jesus himself, our greatest example. And as he calls us to endurance, he tells us how to endure. In Hebrews 12, verses 2 to 3, we do this, we endure by keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame, 
and now he is seated in the place of honor beside God's throne. Think of all the hostility he endured from sinful people. Then you won't become weary and give up. Now, like any good sermon, uh, Hebrews is full of exhortations. Exhortations which call us to remain faithful to Jesus, to not give up. And they generally begin with words that in our English version will say, let us, let us. And, and so let's look at some of the exhortations that are in the book. Let us be diligent to enter, to enter God's rest. Let us hold fast to our confession. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Let us press on to perfection. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and run the race. Let us go to him. Let us offer up a sacrifice of praise, constantly exhorting us to be faithful and to follow Jesus. But in each of these exhortations, there's a feeling of urgency in the tone of the preacher, as if he says, let's do it now. Don't wait till tomorrow. Do it now. And also, let's do it fully. Let's give it everything we've got and not be half-hearted about it. This is the tone of the book of Hebrews, calling us to endure, calling us to follow Jesus and not give up and not turn back. Now that concludes our, our brief overview of, of Hebrews. As I say, we'll be into Hebrews for six more weeks after today. It's a sermon for Christians who are tempted to quit because of persecution that ranges from ridicule to loss of property and physical abuse. It's written to people who are increasingly finding themselves out of sync with the world around them and are thinking about maybe giving up and going back to the old, more comfortable ways. See, this is a sermon. This book of Hebrews is a sermon for us today. We are living in in an increasingly post-Christian culture. Our churches in North America are literally emptying out. People are not going to church anymore. We feel alone. We feel isolated. We feel marginalized. And following Jesus is costing us a lot more than it cost us even a decade ago. People will lose out on job opportunities because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. We may find ourselves being ridiculed and taunted. Should we dare to express what we believe in public? Well, we shouldn't be surprised. Jesus promised us that this would happen. He told us we would be persecuted. Even in Canada. So let us not be oblivious to what's going on, lest we be caught off guard. Because if we're caught off guard by it, we could be easily tempted to give up, to throw in the towel, to find an easier way to live. We need to hear and heed the exhortations in Hebrews to remain faithful, following the example of Jesus as we follow him as his disciples. Now, Hebrews is is a fairly dense book, uh, but it's extremely logical, so you can follow it. And in the book of Hebrews, he gives us one reason for not giving up. 
And that reason shows up over and over and over again in the book. It's one simple reason, and it's the unique superiority of Jesus Christ. That is the reason why we don't give up, why we don't go back to an easier way of life, because Jesus is greater than... You put any word there in the blank you want. Any word. It doesn't matter. Jesus is greater than that. And that's the reason that we remain faithful to him and we don't turn back. So let's leave the introduction to the book and let's go on to the readings for today. The first is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And the author immediately launches into this fact that Jesus is greater, the superiority of Jesus, and he does it with two words. God spoke. It says, long ago God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. Now this thought is foundational to both Christianity and Judaism. God speaks. Both religions, both systems of thought are based upon divine revelation. God has revealed himself to us. This alone sets us apart from our culture. We live in a culture where there is no conviction left that God has ever spoken to us and little interest in what God might have ever had to say to us in the first place. Since the beginning of human history, when Adam and Eve chose not to obey God's instructions, There's been an estrangement estrangement between God and the human race. And communication, as Adam and Eve had known in the Garden of Eden with God, was cut off. We might call it a communication breakdown, a complete failure of communication. Instead of going to God and spending time with Him, Adam and Eve hid. They were afraid. Yet in spite of our rebellion, God has not been silent. He's been doing his part throughout human history to restore the communication between God and the human race. God has spoken to us. Now in the past, according to the preacher, the the author of Hebrews, he said God spoke through prophetic voices. Now sometimes those prophetic voices were human Other times, they were angelic. God spoke. But now, he says, with the incarnation of Jesus, there's a better, greater voice. He says in verse 2, Now in these final days, the end of time, God has spoken to us through his Son. Now, as we said, God had been speaking for thousands of years through angels who usually began the conversation by saying, fear not, which is a good thing, because they are frightful to us, or through prophets who generally began the conversation by saying, thus saith the Lord, listen to God. But now God has spoken to us without a mediator, but directly through his Son. You see, the new revelation is vastly superior to the old. Then, without wasting our time, the preacher or author gives us an overview of who this son is. We'll begin reading in the middle of verse 2. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance, and through the son, he created the universe. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. 
and he sustains everything by the power, the mighty power of his command. So let's review this description of the Son. First, he's the heir. He's the heir of everything. The whole universe belongs to Jesus. And there's a logical reason for this. Because he's the creator of everything. He made it, thus he inherits it. Makes Jesus the Son the rightful heir of everything that is. He radiates God's glory. God's glory was very important to the Israelites. They longed for those occasions when God's glory visited them face to face. Almost in an overwhelming way, they longed to see the glory of God. And now the book of Hebrews says, if you want to see God's glory, don't go to the temple. Look at Jesus. And you will see radiating from him all of God's glory. Everything that is glorious about God, you see in the sun. And then he says, a son is an exact representation of God's nature. What God is, the son is in every exact detail. Nothing left out. When we look at the son, we see everything that God is. And then he finally says, and by divine power, he sustains everything that exists. Everything. Everything in the universe is sustained and held together by the son. See, this Jesus that we're talking about this morning is greater than anyone or anything. That is the essential message of the book of Hebrews. How could anyone turn away from him and go back to a life without him? This is what the author of Hebrews is going to be saying to us for the next six weeks. Lest we get tempted to give up. Then he finally goes from what Jesus is, or who Jesus is, to what Jesus has done. That's where he takes us next in verse 3. When he had cleansed us from sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heavens. The act of sitting down is just simply a statement that he's done. He finished the work that he came here to do. He's done. He sat down. Because he has rescued us from sin as he came to do. That sin that has cloaked and marred and shaped our lives since the Garden of Eden, he came to take away. And now he's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And then in verse 4, we hear this summation of everything he said in this section. This shows us that the Son is far greater than the angels, just as the name God gave him is greater than their names. Well, that doesn't really grab us, does it? But I'll guarantee you that if we were Jewish people living in the first century, it would grab us enormously because they put great stock in angels. They saw angels as God's primary messengers. They saw angels as God's primary administrators in the world. They saw angels as the one who would come and rescue them and deliver them when they were in trouble. They put great stock in angels and paid great attention to them. And now the author of Hebrews says, forget the angels. The Son is vastly superior to the angels in every way. Jesus is superior because he's the Son. Now we move to our second reading from Hebrews uh, for today, chapter 2, verses 5 to 12. And here the preacher returns to the point that he made when we quit reading in chapter 1. 
he says Jesus is greater than the angels. So what does he say between chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 2, verse 4? What goes on there? Well, the rest of chapter 1, which we skipped over, is just a deepening of his argument that Jesus is greater than the angels. And he sums it up at the end of chapter 1 where he says, Therefore, angels are only servants, spirits sent to care for those people who will inherit salvation. Ah, so now he shifts the conversation from angels to salvation. Jesus is superior to the angels, and he introduces the idea of salvation. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, he picks up on the word salvation, and he gives us the first of his series of warnings that we find in the book of Hebrews. And, and the warning is simply that we should not neglect such a great salvation, the salvation that we want to inherit. He says in, in that verse, What makes us think that we can escape if we ignore this great salvation which was first announced by the Lord himself? Now, at, after delivering that warning to us, he goes back to this idea that Jesus is superior to the angels in chapter 2, verse 5, where he says, Furthermore, it's not angels who are going to control the future world that we're talking about. So that's he wraps that argument up. Now, the next verse that we looked at this morning, he quotes Psalm 8, which was our Old Testament reading for the morning. It's a psalm that, that takes us back to our first parents, to Adam and Eve. And here we see them as they leave the Garden of Eden in despair because they're beginning to understand what they've lost. They leave in despair. But the emphasis in Psalm 8 is on a description of what humanity was supposed to be. The verses show us what we were created to be. Now, there's someone out there, I don't know who it is. There's someone out there that was paying attention this morning and noticed a difference between Psalm 8 as it was read from the psalm and the quotation of Psalm 8 that was read from Hebrews. Because in the psalm it says that humans were created a little lower than God. In Hebrews, it quotes it as saying we were created a little lower than the angels. Somebody out there noticed it, if you did tell me afterward, um, because I'd love to hear from you. There is that difference. Why? It's very simple. Uh, Hebrews always quotes from what's called the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It was done in Egypt. Uh, our Old Testament books like Psalms 8 and our Bibles were translated from Hebrew. And the original Hebrew says you created them a little lower than Elohim, a little lower than God. That just introduces what he's going to say to us about human beings. We are created just a little step below God. Follow what he says. What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or a son of man that you should care for them? Yet for a little while you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. Now when it says all things, he means nothing is left out. But we have not yet seen all things put under their authority. He's reminding us of how God created us, just a little bit lower 
than God himself. Crowned with glory and honor. How could we be crowned with glory and honor? The fact is that we are crowned with glory and honor because we are created in God's own image. We bear in our lives the likeness of God. And we were created to have an authority that we were to use as stewards of his earth. So the author uses Psalm 8 to remind us of who and what we were created to be. What he doesn't have to remind us of is how far we've fallen from that. We don't have to be reminded either. If you read the newspaper or spend any time on the internet or watch news on TV, you don't have to be reminded of how dreadfully far we have fallen from Psalm 8. But he uses Psalm 8 to say this is what we were created to be and then he shifts his attention to Jesus who he names for the very first time here in verse 9 of chapter 2 but we've known all along it was Jesus he was talking about. And he says, says this in verse 9, what we do see is Jesus who for a little while was given a position a little lower than the angels. That's a reference to his incarnation. He became human. He did not lose his divinity. He did not cease to be God, but he became human. A little bit lower than God and the angels. Because, and because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many sons to glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader. He's called in some versions the pioneer of our salvation, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Now, this thought is nearly incomprehensible to us. Jesus, God's Son, the only one in human history ever to be fully human and fully divine, died in order to bring many sons to glory. Follow the preacher's logic. Psalm 8 shows us what we were supposed to be. Our disobedience got in the way, and we lost all of that. We've fallen short of the mark. Jesus dies to bring us back to sons of glory. It means that Jesus not only shows us what we were created to be by his own life, he leads us and takes us back to that by his own grace and power. He restores us to what we're supposed to be. Now, th those of you that have known me for a while know that I love C.S. Lewis and I love the Chronicles of Narnia. In our house church, I used to frequently quote from the Chronicles of Narnia. In one of the versions, Aslan, or one of the books, Aslan says to one of the characters, and, and I'm sorry, the translation between Macintosh and uh, PC, politically correct computers, didn't quite work here. So Aslan says to this person, You come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar, and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. The shame is in our fallenness. The glory 
is in our being created in the image of God. The superiority of Jesus Christ lies in the fact that he can bring us back to that position of being what we were created to be, to make us sons of glory. It is Jesus who leads and brings many sons to glory. Yes, Jesus is greater than anyone. He reveals God to us. He saves us from our rebellion. He shows us what we were created to be, and he leads us back to that state of glory. How could anyone or anything be greater than God's Son? Who would want to turn away from him and go back to their old ways? We're going to sing a song of worship now in response to what we've seen here in the book of Hebrews, worshiping our God and our Savior Jesus, how deep the Father's love for us, in which we see Jesus depicted on the cross, and it says, His wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Let's sing this together with joy this morning.